Thank you, Tom, for not only leading us in worship this morning, but the last, including this week, three weeks, as Mike has been away. Pastor Mike has been away. He's done a great job. Um, I did hear Pastor Mike is homesick, so he's looking forward to coming back. But he's been deep in his studies, uh, working on his Doctor of Ministry in Biblical Counseling, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing as he works on his thesis what he comes up with from there. But we are uh, continuing on our series in Ephesians. Um, we are uh, nearing the end. We're starting chapter 5, and then we'll hit the fall. We'll start a new series uh, on, on Rally Day. Um, Mitch has been trying to convince me to do the book of Daniel, the entire book, including all the prophetic stuff in there. Um, and so I think that's probably where we're going to go. Uh, Mitch, that means I can always call on you to help, though. So you're going to be part of this series if we, uh, if we do the book of Daniel. So great, uh, great, uh, 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 great insights, truth in the book of Daniel that I think will be very helpful for our church family. But we're still on Ephesians. We're talking about building a Jesus-centered community. Uh, anyone recognize the building behind us? Behind me? Looks like a church, right? Kind of. I mean, I didn't have anything round to kind of make it, make it, make the, like, the beautiful rose windows. And I ran out of bricks, so it wasn't quite tall enough and all that. But hey, it's a close model. So it'll be interesting when the kids come up and knock down our church, right? That'll be, uh, be good for them to, uh, to do that. But we're jumping into chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, talking about living the Christian life as imitators of God. Living the Christian life as imitators of God. As we talked about, the first three chapters are about gospel theology, the, the, the theology of the gospel that we've been ransomed and redeemed and adopted, and even before the foundation of the world. God has chosen us to be His, and He's made us one, the Jews and Gentiles together, and has united the church as His body. All the gospel theology in the second half, chapters 3 to 6, uh, is really about gospel living. How do we live this out in practice? I had a good conversation with uh, James Taylor at the end of the service uh, last week, and he said, you know, isn't, isn't it, is it Christ who is... Who has made us different, or do we have to actually live this out? And we kind of had a conversation about that, and I think I came up with we came up with this phrase, James, and we both agree with it. We're called to be who you are in Christ. Be in practice who God has already made you. God has already loved you. He's poured out His grace for you. He's already forgiven you. You already belong to Him. You're already His sons and daughters. Now live it out. You're not trying to earn anything from God. You're not going to sort of please God more than He's already pleased as you are clothed in Christ. But be in practice what you already are in Christ. One commentator, Brian Chapel, I like what he says about this. It's a little bit of a lengthier quote, but he says, We obey because we are loved. We are not loved because we obey. The love of our Father precedes and stimulates the obedience of His children. We're to forgive and live and love as dearly loved children, imitating the one who already is our Father, not performing to bribe God to become our Father. And then he writes, should you warn? Yes. Should you command to avoidance? Yes. Should you condemn participation with the world? Yes. But what first? First, remind those who love God and are grieving for their failure that they are His dearly loved children. Say to a struggler, you are a wonderful child, precious child of God, dearly loved. You are precious to Him. Live as one dearly loved. Be what you are 
in Christ. And so, friend, I want to do that very thing. I want to remind you, before we get into this section, which is pretty weighty in terms of its call to obedience, its call to faithfulness to God, just to remind you that you're not saved by doing these things. You're saved by the grace of God, that you are already loved if your faith is in Christ. You're already loved by God, regardless of how much you mess up in trying to do the things that we're going to talk about. You are His, and you belong to Him, and your mess-ups and your failures are not going to take you from Him. But, as those who are in Christ, we're called to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. God is the source of all that is good. He's the source of all morality. He is the source of all value. Uh, God doesn't have a standard that's above Him that He tries to obey. God does what He does. He is who He is, and that is what is good, and what is right, and what is moral in this universe. And so, when we say, try to be good, try to be moral, what we're ultimately saying is, try to be like God. Try to act like God naturally acts in His very being. And you might say, well, it's hard to know how God acts because, you know, He's God and He's Spirit. And, well, God made it easy for us. He gave us Jesus, <laughs> who lived a life of perfect love and sacrifice. A Jesus-centered community is a group of people who, in Christ, are trying to show and imitate God. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Live the Christian life as imitators of God. We read this, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O, o sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the, mo the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Live the Christian life as imitators of God. There's a breakdown in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Uh, but four points. First, uh, verses 1 through 7, the Christian life pursues purity. 
pursues purity, then the Christian life lives in the light, 8 to 14. Then we have the Christian life walks in wisdom, 15 to 17. And then finally, the Christian life is spirit-filled. So we've got a long way to go here. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, the Christian life pursues purity. It's a lifelong journey towards purity. He says here, be imitators of God and walk in love, that's what he said, Uh, and Christ is the ultimate example of that. He lived a life of perfect love, so much so that as it says here, he loved us and gave himself up for us, that he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin in our place, the ultimate example of love for us. And so he calls us to imitate God in this very thing. And one of the ways he does this, uh, one of the first thing he calls us to do is to avoid impurity, (laughs) To pursue purity. And he mentions three different types of sexual impurity right from the start. The first one, porneia, the word we get, uh, the word that means sexual immorality. Uh, that's a sort of the acting on sexual immorality. Then you have impurity, that's sort of a broader term uh, for sexual impurity. And then covetousness, which is now it's the thoughts. So you can see the movement from outright actions towards any type of impurity. Towards now even the thought, the, what's happening in your mind, covetousness, a desire for something that doesn't belong to you. Then he switches to talking about purity, not just in terms of sexuality, but in terms of speech. Purity of speech. Keep yourself from filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Watch and guard your speech when it comes to purity. You know, I do think it's interesting when I, I hear folks, you know, Christians dropping F-bombs. It just doesn't seem doesn't seem to fit, does it? You think, wow, just that language doesn't seem to fit your walk with the Lord. Or using, or having dark jokes uh, at times. You know, it doesn't seem to fit the Christian life. There should be purity in terms of speech. And then he says something very strong. He says, for those who don't live in this, they will have no inheritance. <laughs> now what he's saying there, he's not saying that any of these are the unforgivable sin. Or what's sometimes called the unpardonable sin. Maybe you've heard of that. There's only one unpardonable sin. Did you know that in Scripture? There's one sin that God says clearly He won't forgive. Anyone know what it is? It's the sin of unbelief. It's to reject the means of salvation that He has given us in Jesus. It's to reject the Holy Spirit. As it says, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Turn away from God who has brought salvation to you. The only unforgivable sin is to reject God's forgiveness to begin with. So he's not saying any of these are unforgivable. What he's saying is anyone who lives in continual unrepentant sin, that's the evidence of a lack of belief to begin with. He calls them the sons of disobedience. And he says, be careful not to be partners with them. Again, it's calling to purity. Now what he's saying is not saying you need to isolate yourself. You should not have any friends who are not Christians. You should not have any friends who are are doing these things. Of course, uh, you can't do that. You have to leave this world to do that. The question really is, are are these people that you're with dragging you down? Or are you building them up? I think that's the basic question. If they're dragging you down, you need to separate. If you're building them up, you're doing the right thing. Continue. Be salt and light in this world. The question is, who's affecting whom in that relationship? Friends, we need to remember that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. This is the way way of the world, and we're called as Christians to go in a different direction. To be imitators of God is to go towards purity. You know, in some ways people say, well, if everybody does it, it must be okay, right? Wrong. In fact, in Scripture, 
if everybody does it, it's probably wrong. <laughs> it's probably wrong because we live in a fallen world in which what everybody does typically is not in line with what God is calling us to do. There's the way of the world, the spirit of this age going with the flow. Everybody sleeps around. Everybody lives together before they get married. You've got to drive a car before buying it. It's not God's plan. Culture ebbs and flows when it comes to its view of sexuality. God's plan is different. Everybody talks that way. Everybody jokes about that stuff. Everybody gossips. Everybody makes fun of people every once in a while. Everybody lies. Little white lies. God calls us to the path of purity. He calls us to go against the flow. You've heard it said that even a dead fish can float with the stream. A live fish can swim upstream. God calls us to a different path, to stand out. Because God himself is pure. He is holy. In fact, that's the only attribute of God that is said three times. They didn't have, there's no word for very in the Hebrew. Right, Mitch? No word for very. If you want to use the word very, you just say the same thing over and over. So there's only one attribute of God that's repeated, and that is holiness. God is holy, holy, holy. In other words, God is very, very holy. That's what he's saying. It's an attribute of God, and those who seek to imitate God would follow the same direction. I think it's a good opportunity here, though, to talk about grace. A good opportunity, good time to talk about grace. Understand, again, we're not saved by pure speech. <laughs> We'd all be in trouble if we were. We're not saved by sexual purity. We all need grace. In fact, that's the reason Jesus came. That's the message we celebrate, that we are all sinners, that nobody is pure. Nobody can do this on their own. We need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. We call, we're called to pursue purity, then we fall down, and we mess up. Then we repent, we get back up, and do it again. Until the next time we fall down, or we find ourselves in heaven. Friends, we get back on the wagon. You know, some people say, well, God always gives us a second chance. And I would say, second chance? How about an 89th chance and a 90th chance and a 91st chance and over and over? I mean, I'm, I'm way past second chance at this point in time. God calls us to repent and continue on the direction of purity. It's a good reminder, too, that a good, healthy church is going to have all different kinds of people in it. All different kinds of sinners in it. So sometimes, I, you know, I've, I've done this, been on vacation, wherever, visit another church, and bump into somebody at the church who happens to be very rude, right? Anyone ever done something like that? Probably, right? And you say, what kind of church is this? What's well, the kind of church that's reaching rude people? That's a good thing, right? I mean, a church is filled with people with all different types of sins and struggles and personalities, and people at all different levels. In fact, if you went to a church in which there were only mature Christians and only people who had been very far along in their journey, then you're probably going to a church that is very immature ultimately because they're not reaching anybody. There should be people at all different levels as we seek to pursue purity. Verses 8 to 14, the Christian life is one who lives in the light. Lives in the light. This is the image that he uses starting at verse, verse 8. He uses the symbolism of light and dark. You were once darkness. You know, what I love about light and dark is there's nothing more clear than, than, than that, right? It's black and white, literally. It's dark and light. You were once in the darkness, but now walk as children of the light. As those who belong to the light. And he just finds, what is the light? The light is that whatever is good 
and right and true. <laughs> that's what the light is. Whatever is good and right is true is light, and that's what you're called to walk in. He says, discern what pleases God. Understand what it is, what the light actually is. What is the right path, the right way to go? Discern that, and then have no part in darkness as you seek to walk in the light. He says, don't even, don't even speak about what those in the darkness talk about. And his point there is if you're constantly talking about what those in the darkness do, what happens? You get sucked into it as well. So be careful even, even talking about some of the dark things that happen in the darkness. Instead, what does he say? Expose it. <laughs> That's what the light does, right? In, in reality, light exposes things. You take a, and a rock in your backyard and you lift it up and let the light shine. What happens? You get all these little creepy crawlers that scatter in the face of the light. They've been exposed. And that's what he's saying when it comes to sin, your own sin, expose it. Expose it and deal with it in the light. He quotes the Old Testament and says, Wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. And the point is there, friends, not only are you exposing your own sin, but excuse me, bring others into the light as well. It's a powerful analogy, light and dark. You know, I don't know if you know this, light is kind of a mystery. Uh, it's the first thing God creates in our, cre- in our universe, right? In our creation, God created light. Uh, light is a wave and a particle. So if you're, into, if you're a science person here, it's a wave. Think of a radio wave, you know? And it's a particle. It's actually created from matter. So it's, it's a mystery. How can it be both a wave and a particle? We don't know. It's the fastest thing in this universe. So sorry to all the sci-fi folks here. There is no warp speed and multiple times the speed of light. The fastest thing we know of in this universe is the speed of light. And light actually creates life. That uh, plants photosynthesize because they receive light. Light is a pretty amazing thing in this universe. And when you think about it, darkness isn't even a thing. There's no substance darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. If there's nothing there, including no light, you have darkness. In the same way, evil is not a thing. It's not a substance. It's the absence of God. Where there is no God or no obedience to God, there is no good. It's darkness. Light enables us to see beauty. Enables us to see color in mountains and rivers and waterfalls and stars and oceans and creatures that God has made. Our eyes need Light. I like what C.S. Lewis said. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It makes everything make sense. Friends, when we walk in the light, we're able to enjoy and experience God more fully. Not because we're saved by walking in the light, but to know God more. In fact, God is described in some ways as living in light. Living in light. This is 2 Timothy. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, (laughs) whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the glory forever and ever. We live life in the light. Well, how do we do that, practically speaking? A couple of words of advice here. First of all, read and study the word. Uh, There's no way to really discern and understand what the light is unless we get ourselves into the scriptures. Uh, What does the scripture say? Thy word is what? A lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. We we know how to walk in the light, keeping this analogy that he's using here, by understanding the scriptures. 
Our conscience can only get us so far. Right? You can discern what is right and wrong from your conscience to some degree, but beyond that, you need the scriptures to clarify what is right, what does it mean to walk in the light, and what is wrong. Second thing I would say is keep choosing to live in the light, even if you see no effect about it. Keep choosing to do it. Sometimes it takes years of walking in the light before you really begin to see the effect of it. Continue to take the high road. Every chance you get. Well, it's easier to just take the easy path. It's easier to just compromise here. It's easier to... No, just continue to take the high road. Persist in it. And eventually you'll see the effect of it. And then thirdly, as it says here, bring others into the light. Wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. And I think the calling here is for us to be about reaching others. To say, come. Christ welcomes you into the light. Come out of darkness. Admit your own sin because we're all sinners and hiding your sin does nothing for anyone. It doesn't do anything for yourself and it certainly doesn't do anyone for someone you're trying to reach for Jesus. Uh, You being sinless will not help them come to know the Savior. That's not how it works. Uh, And then point people to Jesus. Friends, so we should be reaching people. I I like uh, just to get practical here. There's plenty of ways that you're saying, like, what do you mean by bringing people into the light, Rick? This idea of going and hitting the streets and talking to strangers. Don't think I can do that. Like in the book, uh, Becoming a Contagious Christian, he gives a number, of, a number of different personalities that God calls us, all of us, to tell people about Jesus, but he gifts us differently in doing it. There are those who have the confrontational approach. Uh, they can talk to anyone, anywhere about Jesus. doesn't matter who they are. They don't mind getting, facing some rejection. Uh, it's very easy for them. We have some people in our church who are like that. One of them um, gave birth to me, by the way. My mom is like that. She'll talk to anyone, anywhere about Jesus. It doesn't matter uh, where you are, on a plane, on a bus, walking the street. It doesn't make a difference. So uh, that's some people. Not everybody's like that. Others take more intellectual or philosophical approach, they say. So somebody is, is really good at answering deeper theology questions or philosophical questions. That's just uh, who they are. Uh, so use the way God has made you to reach people uh, in the way he's made you. Uh, others are more testimonial. Uh, in other words, somebody is, is more about, let me tell you my story. <laughs> they just can't stop sharing about what God has done in their own life. And they use that as a powerful witness um, for Jesus. Maybe that's you. Um, a lot others are more invitational. Uh, the idea of sitting there and having a, a whole discussion or debate or something is very difficult, but you have no problem going up to someone and saying, why don't you come to church on Sunday? Or why don't you come to this event that we're having? Or whatever it may be. You're no problem with being invitational. And uh, he mentions two more. One is serving. So they're always uh, serve, they're willing to help out uh, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. And they, they use that um, and, as a means of sort of reaching people. And the last one is signs and wonders, uh, which we clearly see in Scripture, that God does uh, the impossible. Things like healing uh, that can't be explained by our own ability. Point is this, friends. All of us are called to bring others into the light. Regardless of how God has shaped you and gifted you and molded you and the personality that you have, you use it for Him. As I was coming into the church, I was just talking to Frank Maynard. Uh, he was heading to Brentwood Prison, and he's going there to share the gospel with those who are inmates and willing to gather. And he said, pray for me, Rick. We got this guy. I already met him last week, and he said that uh, 
He's never heard anything in the New Testament. He's only read the Old Testament. And now I'm starting to talk to him about what Jesus has done. And he said, I got, I got you know, goosebumps all over my arms right now hearing about this. I've never heard this before. That's Frank heading into a prison to share the gospel. Is that for everyone? Probably not, right? But God uses him, uses all of us differently to bring others into the light. Let me come to 15 to 17. The Christian life walks in wisdom. Walks in wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. This idea of wisdom is a big theme in all of the Bible. We see it, of course, in the book of Proverbs in particular. Uh, but we see it beyond that in all of the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, and Job, a little bit of Song of Songs, some of the Psalms as well. Uh, all of wisdom literature talks about these two paths. It's the path of wisdom and it's the path of foolishness. and calls us down the path of wisdom. Verse 16, he says, path of wisdom means making the best use of your time. Literally, it says, redeem the time. <laughs> you only get so much time in life. Use it well. That's wisdom. Uh, I just uh, turned 39 last Tuesday. Uh, so thank you, uh, thank you for the one person clapping. <laughs> just kidding. No, thank you, everybody. It was... Uh, it, it was uh, it's eye-opening to think I'm 39 years old and I can't go back. <laughs> That's it. That's it. 39 years are behind me and I will never have them again. I will never be running around the yard at, at uh, Cornell Road where I grew up here in Haverhill and playing in the back, playing catch in the back with my younger brother. Those days are over. It's done. Time only goes one direction. Redeem it. Use it well. It's limited. It's a limited resource. The wealthiest person in the world has 60 seconds per minute. The poorest person in the world has 60 seconds per minute and that's it. And that's all you get. Friends, redeem the time. Use it well. And he says uh, don't be foolish. Again, it's the opposite of wisdom. Understand the Lord's will. Those are the opposites. To be foolish is to not understand the Lord's will. Just go at life with no sense of direction. Wisdom is to clearly understand the Lord's will and to go in that direction. That's the difference between the path of wisdom and the path of, path of foolishness. Now, what is wisdom? Maybe you're not familiar with what I mean by wisdom. Wisdom, in Scripture at least, wisdom is a practical, live-it-out knowledge. It's knowledge, but it's live-it-out knowledge. It's not just intellect in Scripture. Uh, you, you, have, you can have brilliant PhD fools. <laughs> uh, it, it's not just about the mind and how smart you are. It's about how you take God's Word and you take what you know live it out practically daily. That's wisdom in Scripture. You know, as I get older, I want to be a wise person. <laughs> I want to, I, I, my uh, mentor, my doctoral mentor, Haddon Robinson, passed away just a, about a little less than a month ago. Um, and uh, one of the things he said, he was an older man, he got Parkinson's, and, but he said, I want to grow old well. I thought that was very wise. I don't want to become, he said, a cranky cynical old person who poo-poos everything around him, you know, gets down on everything around him. It's all the world's going to hell. Everything's terrible. I want to be, I want to grow old well. I'm the same way. I want to grow old wisely. I want to look at the next generation and smile and be optimistic and to encouraging on the things that are good about it. I like old westerns. Anyone like old westerns? Good handful, yeah. 
I like, uh, I like ones that have the, the old cowboy, you know, who's lost his energy, but he's, he's got a lot of wisdom. <laughs> and he's with the young, energetic hand who's got all the energy, you know, all the fire in him, but doesn't have the wisdom. And the two of them kind of work together. Like, you see it again. I love examples of wisdom in Scripture like Job. Job is a man who's seen it all. All the suffering and difficulties and hardship of life. Lost, his, uh, lost all his kids. Uh, lost all his home and all of his stuff. And God brought him back. He's at the end a wise example. Or Simeon and Anna in the New Testament. Who in their old age, what does Simeon say when he sees the baby? Jesus. Jesus is just an infinite. Now I can depart in peace. Because I've seen the Lord's anointed. He's been waiting for this time with expectation and anticipation. He's not upset and cranky about the next generation. He's eager with hope, looking forward to what God is doing next and says, now I can pass away from this world in peace. And folks, and I look at our own church. I won't name names because I'll inevitably leave someone out, but I see the same here. A number of folks who I look to and say, wisdom, the wisdom of years is behind you. Friends, let's be a wise people. Uh, we do that by recognizing the times, <laughs> redeeming the time. I think we live in a time where there is a unique opportunity for ministry. I think that's true in our country, in the United States right now. I think it's true of this church and its particular history and its particular relationship to our community right now. Uh, The world around us is filled, I think, with a lot of hate, a lot of confusion, and a lot of emptiness. We see this going on all the time right in our world right now. We saw it down in Boston and Charlottesville and so forth, such anger and such hatred and such emptiness of purpose. What an opportunity for us, friends, to redeem the time, to see that and see the missionary opportunity that's right in front of our eyes. Uh, Use your life well. Uh, Don't waste your life, right? I'm stealing that from John Piper. Don't waste your life. Uh, John Piper said, but whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and live it, live for it and die for it. And you will make a difference that, la- difference that lasts. You will not waste your life, friends. Don't waste your life. You get one life, redeem the time and use it well. I used to really like the phrase carpe diem. That phrase carpe diem, anyone know what it means? Yell it out, somebody knows it. Seize the day, right? Seize the day. Uh, I think it's a good term, but it's limited. Uh, I think it is helpful. Recognize that there's a limited amount of time and try to do the best with it, but it it misses something. And this is the idea of deferred gratification. (laughs) Wise wisdom means sometimes working hard and being disciplined towards something greater that's coming in the future. Not just grabbing the hold of this day and making the most of the one day, but working towards the future. Uh, Friends, I think that is also what it means to use your life well. Uh, I have to throw a little plug in for Financial Peace University. that's a big part of, of FPU is, is learning deferred gratification. <laughs> Being wise now with your resources so that you can do more with it later on. Uh, one example of that is uh, he gives the example of a young man, Ben, who saves money um, from age, uh, I think it's 19 to 25. 19 to 25. So for six or seven years, he puts away $2,000 into his retirement. That's it. But he was disciplined enough at a young age to do it. And didn't drive like a maniac, too, which is really important for survival. But then doesn't touch it until he's 65. Doesn't even add another dime to his retirement. 
just for those seven years or whatever it was, puts in $2,000 a year. When he retires, he ends up with well over $2 million in his retirement because he lived wisely with deferred gratification. Uh, friends, that's what he's talking about. I think that's true not just, of course, in finances, but in life. Be willing to work hard now. Put aside the satisfaction now for something that is greater later on. Redeem the time. And then understand the Lord's will. I think we understand the Lord's will by understanding His Word again. Uh, this is so important, friends, if you're saying, I, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know what He wants me to do. Well, here's a very simple uh, path forward for you. Understand His will in the Scriptures. So understand God's providential will in the Word. Understand His moral will, what He wants for all Christians and all people who belong to Him. And it will begin to clarify for you what His personal will is. The more we understand His providential will in Scripture, the more we grasp His moral will, what He wants for us as His people, the clearer His personal will for you will become going going forward. And then 18 to 20, the Christian life is Spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. He says here, uh, we're called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. That's what he's saying. Don't get drunk. I think in Scripture, uh, just to be clear, uh, drinking is not prohibited. Jesus drunk wine. Jesus made wine from water. Drunkenness is always uh, considered a sin all throughout Scripture consistently. Don't get drunk with wine, which I think also would apply equally to drugs. I think anything that is basically mind-altering to the point where you don't have full uh, control of your capacities is the same idea. Same thing. They didn't have the same drugs we had back then, but I think the principle would apply here. Which leads to, for that is debauchery. Debauchery is a lack of self-control. An an indulgence in sensuality that lacks any self-control. But interestingly enough, he parallels that, or opposes that with being filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk. Don't be filled with that sort of echo of satisfaction. Enjoy the real thing, which is the presence of God in your life. Then he says, address each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Friends, there we see right there the diversity. <laughs> it's not just hymns, hymns, and hymns. <laughs> it's, it's psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's the whole array. In fact, I have this, uh, this vision of having a harmony of an old song being sung by a choir. And having a praise band sing a modern praise song. And at the same time, having someone sing, singing a hymn and putting them all together in harmony. I wonder what that would sound like. I think that could be beautiful. He says here, sing, we sing to each other. We're addressing each other with our songs. Many of our songs are not sung to God. But first and foremost, it's sung to each other. We're encouraging one another. And then, of course, some sung to the Lord. Giving thanks always for everything. Uh, so there's a spirit of gratitude regularly in our worship. God's Spirit leads us to worship. Notice the connection here between music and worship. Uh, There is a deep connection between our worship and what we sing about. Now, it's not as if worship is only music, right? Sometimes I've heard people say, everything is worship. No, not everything is worship. If everything is worship, nothing is worship. He watered down the term to the point where nothing actually becomes worship. No, worship is unique. It's an intentional thing we do which we encounter God and celebrate God. But music is a unique way in a very biblically sanctioned way in which we engage God in worship. We sing to Him. We sing to one another. We give Him glory as we're filled with the Spirit. Like music has a way of helping us to see with spiritual eyes, 
helping us to celebrate, not just think, but to celebrate God and to feel and to enjoy Him. That's why it's important that we get this right. That worship is not about my way or the highway. (laughs) It's not about I want my preference done or I'm leaving. That's not what worship is about. Worship is, is with the spirit of gratitude. And as we see right here, it includes diversity and the way we praise. Friends, we want to be a spirit-filled people, a spirit-filled church. Put behind you drunkenness, the cheap knockoff of the real spiritual high that he has in mind here of being filled with the spirit, enjoying your God and creator. Recognize that there's a spiritual battle that we're engaged in against our sin, against Satan, against worldliness. Enjoy the Holy Spirit in His presence. Experience God. Know Him and enjoy Him. He guides, He heals, He changes us, He comforts us. Live the Christian life as imitators of God. Pursue purity. Live in the light. Walk in wisdom. Be spirit-filled. Because that's what God is like. God who is truly pure and holy. God who lives in unapproachable light. God who is the only wise. And God who is eternal spirit. And as his imitators, we want to be like him. And when you look at your kids or your grandkids, they reflect you. (laughs) For good and bad, they reflect you, right? And what you want to do is to see them as imitators of the good. And so when God looks down and sees us, what he wants us to do is to imitate him. As I started off by saying, we're not saved by any of these things. And I think it's a good and important reminder. Salvation comes through faith alone. But as his people, we want to go and sin no more. Isn't that what, what Jesus said to the woman who came to him as the men were trying to stone her? And Jesus says, did any of them judge you? And she says, no, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. I forgive you, but now take that forgiveness and go and sin no more. We see that as the woman who comes into Jesus as he's with Simon the Pharisee and falls down at his feet and begs him for forgiveness. And Jesus says, your sins, though they are many, are forgiven. Now go in peace. Take this forgiveness and live it out. I like uh, Don Francisco, and I'm going to end with this, puts that story into a song. And maybe you see yourself, I know I see myself in the place of this woman. This is a song. And I don't know just how that woman got into that room. It's from the perspective of Simon the Pharisee, I should say. But you couldn't miss her gaudy clothes and her strong and sweet perfume. She went straight to Jesus' feet and stopped and stood right there. Then cried and wet his feet with tears and dried them with her hair. Of all the women in my town, none was more well-known for the flagrant sin she'd lived and the wickedness she'd sown. But he didn't move to stop her. Seemed this prophet couldn't tell that the woman who was touching him was the kind they buy and sell. And I had no idea just what this Jesus planned to do when he said, Simon, there's something I need to say to you. So I said, teacher, if it's on your mind, then tell me what you will. But as he began to speak to me, the room grew quickly still. He said, take a good look at this woman now. 
In spite of all her fears, she's kissed me and anointed me and washed my feet with tears. She's honored me and you've been only rude to me instead. You gave me no kiss of greeting, no anointing for my head. And her sins were red as scarlet and now they're washed away. The love and faith she's shown is all the price she's had to pay. For the depth of God's forgiveness, it's more than you can see. And in spite of what you think of her, she's beautiful to me. Now my anger flamed to hatred. I wanted nothing more than to take this prophet by the throat and throw him out the door. To act like God, forgiving sins, and then speak so to me. Speak so to me this itinerant from Nazareth and backwards Galilee. But instead I sat and trembled, shaken to the core. This woman still was weeping as she knelt there on the floor. Jesus turned to her and said, Your chains have been released. Your faith has saved you from your sins. Rise and walk in peace. Because we're saved by the grace and love of God and He calls us to go and sin no more. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the high call of holiness that you give us in your word. I thank you, Father, that though we stumble and fall and fail, all of us, there is mercy and grace and forgiveness in Christ. That though our sins were red as scarlet, they have been washed away. Lord, I pray, help us. Help us as we do this. Help us as we, as your people, strive for this by your grace. Strive to pursue purity. Strive to live in the light. Strive to walk in wisdom. And strive to live lives that are spirit-filled. Transform us into the image of your Son, Lord, so that when you see us, you see us as little imitators of God, (laughs) striving to live in all that is good and right and reflecting your perfect character. Again, not just in this life, but forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.